Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 1st, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present the Arab question, part 2. I pray that next week I'll be able to get back to my commentary on the Gospel of John. In part 1 of this series... I presented a paper which Clifton Emmerheiser had published in September of 2006 titled Arabs, Friend or Foe. Now this evening I will present another paper on a subject which Clifton had prepared for publication that very same month titled Both Jews and Arabs are Serpent Seed. And while Clifton labeled this as part one, there never was a part two. Later on, he did do other follow-up papers on related aspects of the same subject under other titles, and we hope to present them as part of this series in the future. And, of course, we hope to expand on them as well as we're going to expand on this topic here this evening. As I also explained in the Arab Question Part 1. Clifton and I were addressing this subject in the fall of 2006, or perhaps actually late summer, because at that time, and even today, there are identity Christians who express the conviction that some that we should somehow have empathy for Arabs and even seek alliances with them since Arabs are perceived as being at enmity with Jews. However, nothing could be further from the truth. Once the broader spectrum of history is examined outside of the modern local conflicts over a small patch of land in Palestine. In truth, the Arabs have forever been in league with the Jews or utilized by the Jews in their long-sought destruction of Christendom. In the Christian era, that situation began in the early 7th century BC and it persists on a broad scale to this very day. The race mixing of white Christians with African Arabs and Negroes is currently being rather aggressively promoted by government agencies in Europe as a way to have peace, equality, and tolerance. This is especially true in Germany and Sweden. In England, there are so-called grooming gangs, which are organized Islamic gangs intent on targeting and either enticing or forcibly raping young white girls, girls who are often as young as 10 years of age. Once they are compromised, these girls are forced into participating in continual sexual acts with adult Arab males. The gangs often operate freely and sometimes, as in cases like Rotherham or Rockdale. They are even protected by local authorities. 
which are often so afraid of being called racist that they purposely harass anyone who tries to call them into account for allowing these gangs to operate, all for fear of the Jews who control British politics and the British media. There are even occasions where the parents of girls abused in this manner had been arrested when they tried to complain because the authorities would rather multiply and perpetuate injustice and the destruction of the British people rather than admit that the great egalitarian experiment is an abject failure that can only result in the complete destruction of the native British people and culture. I would be surprised if such grooming gangs are not operating here in America, where tens of thousands of children disappear every year, never to be seen again. Whenever a child disappears, nobody in a position of authority ever imagines that law enforcement agents should be checking the basements of mosques and synagogues. The grooming gangs are part of a purposeful Islamic holy war against white Christian Europe, and they are protected by the Jewish-controlled media and politicians. Even when members of such gangs must be arrested, they are often given light sentences, or not even jailed for their actions. Some judges go so far as dismissing cases, rape cases, based on cultural differences or misunderstandings of Western law, as if admitting that native law has no authority over foreign intruders, even when the natives are supposedly still in power. This has been the, the result of several recent notable race ca rape cases in Europe. So the logical question is that the laws and customs of a people. If the laws and customs of a people no longer have any effect in their own country, then who is really running that country? Well, we know who's running practically every country. We have asserted that the religion of Islam is a contrivance of the Jews. And so is Freemasonry, which we have discussed at length in our recent series of presentations on the Protocols of Satan, which I hope to resume again in the near future. Freemasonry, and especially the branch of masonry known as the Shriners, are fascinated by all things Arab, and they even openly promote Islam in their insignia and their accoutrements. These connections are not coincidental. I would esteem Islam to be Judaism for the non-white desert goyim, and Freemasonry to be Judaism for the white goyim. Returning to our topic, which is the nature of Arabs, this subject has impacted the world around us in ways that not even many identity Christians comprehend. With the spread of Islam into Iberia, Greece, Sicily, and parts of southern Italy, 
and sometimes also southern France and other places in Europe, both Jews and Arabs freely intermingled at their own pleasure with the local Christian populations which they dominated, even if only for a time. Clifton gave an example of this from the 1980 edition of Collier's Encyclopedia, where, citing the article on Muslims in Spain, he said, again from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 17, page 80, under the topic Muslims and the subtopic, the Omeyyad Caliphate of Spain, we read the following. So many native Christians adopted Islam and intermarried with the conquerors that the original Muslim stock was thoroughly blended with the local peoples, meaning the people of the formerly white people of Spain and Portugal. When the, the reconquest of Iberia was finally achieved by the true Spaniards, the blood of these newly Arabized bastards the blood of these supposed Christians who intermarried with these Arabs and, and the Jews that accompanied them, that actually led them into Spain, that blood was never removed from the Iberian Peninsula simply because there was a reconquest. The reconquest was a reconquest of religion and government only, it didn't remove all of the Arab peoples and their, their descendants. Not at all. The subsequent spread of the presumed Spanish and Portuguese throughout the Caribbean, and I say presumed because many of them were indeed now Arabs, and the Americas brought many mixed or Arab Spaniards and Portuguese into all of the areas settled by the Spanish and Portuguese as well as many conversal Jews. In medieval literature and in modern literature written about the period, these conversal Jews are called by the euphemism of new Christians as opposed to the traditional and original white Christians of Spain and Portugal. During the Inquisition, large numbers of these new Christians fled on the ships of the conquistadors, hoping to find places in the New World where they may safely practice their Judaism. The material which I am about to present in order to support that assertion, I have seen described in many other and earlier sources, but here I will cite a more recent book, one by Edward Kritzler, who may or may or may not have been a Jew, I suspect that he probably was, which was published in London by J.R. Books in 2009, which is titled Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. First, on page 47, Kritzler wrote, where he speaks of the Spanish crown under the rule of Ferdinand and Isabella, as early as 1501, the crown published an edict that Moors, Jews, heretics, 
reconciliados or repentance, those who return to the church, to me that probably indicates converso Jews who returned to Judaism and then pretended to return back to Catholicism. Reconciliados and new Christians, meaning Jews who pretended to be Catholics, are not to be allowed to go to the Indies. Yet, in 1508, the Bishop of Cuba reported, practically every ship arriving in Havana is filled with Hebrews and new Christians, meaning Jews and conversos. Such decrees banning them, followed by letters home, complaining of their continued arrival were a regular occurrence. Here it must be noted that even in the 15th century, and much earlier than that, Jews were mistaken by European scholars and clerics for Hebrews. Scholars have always taken for granted the claims of the Jews themselves concerning scripture and history and therefore many errors have been perpetuated throughout the centuries. Kritzler continues, Conversos with the aptitude and capital to develop colonial trade, comfortable in a Hispanic society, yet seeking to put distance between themselves and the homeland of the Inquisition, made their way to the New World, no licenses were required for the crew of a ship, and as many as were owned by conversos, they signed on as sailors and jumped ship. Servants also didn't need a license or exit visa, so that a Jew who obtained one by whatever means could take others along as household staff. Here for his citation from the Catholic Bishop of Cuba, Kritzler had cited a 1970 book titled The Jews in New Spain, published by the University of Miami Press in 1970, which was written by a Jew named Seymour B. Liebman. I remember some years ago having read another citation which was made from that same letter, but Unfortunately, I cannot remember the source, or I would rather have had that this evening. It was certainly not from Liebman. The letter continued by warning its recipients that on account of the large numbers of Jews who had immigrated into Havana, the Spanish were in danger of losing Havana as a Catholic city. That situation alarmed the local Spanish bishop for which reason the letter was written. In 1508, the recipient of that letter was either Joanna of Castile, writing it to the Spanish crown, or her father Ferdinand II, who continued to rule Aragon until his own death in 1516. Spain was once again divided into separate kingdoms upon the death of Isabella in 1504, where Castile and Leon, her inheritance, 
were left to Joanna, her daughter, with Ferdinand, until the death of her father Ferdinand in 1516, who then left to her Aragon, which was his inheritance. So in 1516, these provinces in Spain were reunited under Joanna. Among Joanna's sisters were queens of Portugal and England. She had a brother, but for some reason he remained a prince of one province in northern Spain, I forget the name, and never became king. I don't know why. Writing of a somewhat, early, of a somewhat later period, Critzler states that the first openly Jewish settlement in the New World was in Brazil. In 1624, the Dutch captured Brazil's capital, Bahia, from Portugal with an invasion force that included several dozen declared Jews. The invaders were assisted by local conversos, who had gotten word that an Inquisition office was to be established in their province, where 200 of them were living as counterfeit Christians. A year later, King Philip IV of Spain sent a 12,000-man army and temporarily threw the Dutch out. Afterward, the Inquisitor's report charged secret Jews had written Holland, Jews that pretended to convert, had written Holland and asked the Dutch to liberate them, had initiated plans for the invasion and agreed to share its costs, these secret Jews being residents of Bahia in Brazil, reconquered by the Spanish, had written the Dutch and offered to pay the Dutch to take it back again so that they could live as Jews again. The heretics, these secret Jews, had suckled at the breast of the mother church and, when the Dutch came, openly professed the Jewish faith. In 1630, Holland's forces again invaded. I guess it took a couple of years. Landing north of Bahia, they conquered Recife and surrounding provinces in northeast Brazil. Under Dutch protection, a Jewish community thrived there for 24 years. They called their congregation Zor Israel, or Rock of Israel. They marketed sugar and taxed Jewish privateers, that means Jewish pirates, Pirates with licenses from one government or another are called privateers, and taxed Jewish privateers 3% of their booty. Sugar and piracy transformed Recife into the richest trading port in the New World outside of Havana, and Jews, integral participants in both industries, lived a high life. Their favorite pastimes may be glimpsed from what they outlawed. Synagogue leaders banned card playing on Friday afternoon, as too many members missed Sabbath service, and levied whopping fines on members caught taking Christian women into the mikvah, the ritual bath. The mikvah is a Jewish bath used 
usually used for purposes of ritual purification, what Judaized Christians call baptism. Evidently, the first shiksa in the mikvah may have been Eve, although the analogy is not so explicit as it is described in Genesis chapter 3. In any event, the same problem certainly persists to this very day, and now serpents are seducing white women everywhere. Here Kritzler had candidly described the race mixing of wealthy Jews with Christian women, whether Iberian or Dutch, in early Brazil. But Brazil was not the only place so affected by these early Jewish settlers. Among other Jewish media and academic institutions, the Kritzler book was embraced by the Jewish media outlet, the Jerusalem Post, and its own review of the material highlights, Jamaica as an early settlement of Jewish pirates. It also describes how the Jews of Jamaica had close ties to Jews in France and England. Kingston, Jamaica was estimated to be 20% Jewish in 1720. The article also freely admits the Jewish identity of famous pirates such as Jean Lafitte and how such criminals had established their presence in places such as Galveston, New Orleans, and elsewhere in Central and South America and throughout the Caribbean. When a so-called Hispanic or Latino looks like an Arab or a Jew, there is a good reason for it, because he certainly is an Arab or a Jew. But in reality, there is no real difference between Arabs and Jews, as both groups are an amalgamation of the same process of race mixing, which has been practiced by either group for many, many centuries. It is no coincidence that so many Israeli weddings have been suicide bombed by Arabs who merely walked in the front door pretending to be guests. The only real difference between them is the clothing. Both Jews and Arabs share the same spectrum of racial diversity because they both came from the same cauldron of racial corruption. And now most Hispanics also have a share in that same origin, whether they be in Latin America or in Spain or Portugal. The process of racial amalgamation, which has occurred in that portion of the New World settled by the Iberians, is only an extension of that same process which began in the Mediterranean and Middle East centuries earlier. It was the same Jewish agenda of racial corruption that brought such diversity to the Old World that has also brought it to the New World, and it continues today. We can readily see the consequences of ancient diversity in Egypt, Iran, Pakistan, and later, in Mexico, Haiti, and Cuba, and other so-called shithole countries around the globe. But we always fail 
to learn the lessons of history. Jewish organizations such as the ADL and the SPLC, Anti-Defamation League, Southern Poverty Law Center, they serve as propaganda outlets and watchdogs for the Jews, whose function is to protect that agenda from scrutiny. So they label anyone who stands against it as a hater. So with this, we shall present and discuss Clifton Emmerheiser's paper, Both Jews and Arabs are Serpent Seed, Part 1. Well, Part Only, actually. I'll just delete that off of there. Clifton opens and he says, This will be a sequel to my brochure entitled Arabs, Friend or Foe. I put that flyer together with the help of William Fink with his letter to me of August 6th, 2006, where Bill stated, so that you know, this is what I've been writing concerning the situation in Palestine, which of course reflects my full position on the subject. Clifton then says, if you want to know the entirety of that paper, you will need to obtain a copy or just listen to part one of this series of podcasts. In that essay pertaining to the Arabs, it was clearly demonstrated that the Arabs were as satanic as the Jews. This is the subject that I will address in this pamphlet. As a digression, as he called it a pamphlet and a brochure here, as a digression, Clifton always called his essays pamphlets or brochures because that was their original format. I prefer to call them essays because the writing is more important than the format, especially once it moves to other formats. But I do not think that Clifton imagined that his writings would even be posted on the internet and shared so widely when he began his ministry in 1998. He did in the early 2000s somewhere. I don't remember, 04, 05, 03. He did begin to share them via email. I had sent that letter to Clifton because I knew that he was about to write on the topic. One of the email recipients of Clifton's letters, by the way, was Willie Martin. And a lot of Willie Martin's alleged work is actually Clifton Emmerheiser's work. Willie just ripped Clifton off left or right. I can vouch for that and prove it in most cases because I have notes. I could vouch for that because I've read a lot of Willie Martin and recognized it as things that I had proofread for Clifton Emmerheiser. But that's another story. I had sent that August 2006 letter to Clifton because I knew he was about to write on the topic and I wanted him to know my own general positions on the subject ahead of time. As I explained when I recently presented that first paper here, Clifton and I often worked together on our subjects and if he had any differences of opinion, before publishing them I wanted to give him the opportunity to see my own and to discuss our differences. That is one aspect of our cooperation together. 
but we nevertheless researched our subjects independently, and if our results were ever different, we also discussed that. Of course, being in prison in 2006, I had no access to the internet. I did read limited scientific journals or a limited um, collection or assortment of scientific journals when I could get my hands on them, but I generally couldn't access this type of information freely. Having no access to the internet, with this paper, Clifton takes a turn down a path where I could not follow, except for whatever materials he may have sent me. Often, when he was sending me his papers to proofread, Clifton would send entire articles or chapters from books which he was citing, which helped me consider the overall context of his sources. Sometimes, he sent me entire books. He would actually photocopy entire books. Before continuing, I must also discuss what it is that we consider satanic in the sense that it was used here. The serpent of Genesis chapter 3 is not the only individual Satan. We read in the Revelation in chapter 12 that a third of the angels of heaven had been drawn off to side with Satan in his, the original adversary, in his rebellion against God. And I'm sort of still typing. In Genesis, we see an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented by that serpent, who according to the revelation of Christ is indeed the devil and Satan, Satan with a capital S. So we would assert that every branch on that tree, each one of those individual angels is also an adversary or Satan. The word Satan essentially means adversary. So, as an adjective, something satanic is merely something which is adversarial. As a noun, Christ had even called Peter Satan, a small s Satan, because Peter argued against him and denied something which Christ had professed was the will of God. In the overall biblical context, something adversarial is something which is adverse to the laws or to the word of God, someone who stands against God. Therefore, every bastard is a walking Satan, and that includes every Jew or Arab, as they are all bastards. Here I think that I could speak for Clifton and claim that he would also have understood the term satanic in that same manner as something which is contrary to the word of God against the word of God if the laws of Yahweh tell you not to commit fornication which is the pursuit of strange flesh and therefore race mixing then the result of that fornication is satanic Continuing with Clifton's paper, I looked through his 
electronic documents, but could not locate the source of the correspondence which he is about to make a reference to. I couldn't locate a copy of this email. A friend of mine ran a search on the internet, checking out what he could find concerning the genetics of the Arabs in relation to the Jews. His email read, I pulled together a few sources that hopefully can aid you in your discussion of the Arabs. Some of these sources of information in discussing the similarity between Kenite or Jewish DNA and that of the Palestinian Arab are very interesting. You can find more sources by searching at a search engine such as google.com for such combined keywords as genetic genes, Jews, Arabs, or DNA. Clifton wasn't always so savvy with the internet. It was actually something that he learned. He learned to use midway through his, his ministry. Clifton did save a few hundred of his emails in text documents, but evidently not this particular email. Now he continues to discuss it. This party sent me the addresses of three websites to check out. And while the scientific evidence is very damning to both Jew and Arab, some of the non-scientific postulations, conjecture, and abusive terms made by these sources do not correspond entirely with history or scripture. Of course, they, come, they all come from the Jewish worldview. Therefore, this paper will be written as a critical review. But as to the DNA evidence presented by these sources, we can hardly question their veracity. I will quote the following as presented, and you, the reader, will have to judge for yourself what to accept or reject. At the end, I will make some of my own critical observations. Like so many good sources, these are not entirely without error. And let me say that most, especially in this paper, most of Clifton's critical observations were quite terse. Clifton wrote these pamphlets, which he called them, or brochures, in a very terse manner. And for that same reason, a lot of my own papers, which Clifton published as pamphlets, were written in a very terse manner. Very different than my writing style today, because all of the text had to squeeze onto an 8.5 by 14 inch sheet of paper, um, roughly eight columns back and front and approximately 25 to 2800 words. I'm taking a guess but that's probably a fairly accurate one. It's difficult to squeeze one segment of German origins into 2800 words and I hope one day to rewrite them all for that reason and a few of my other essays for that reason. Clifton continues at the website Foundation Stone in an article which is still which, which which is still available as we present this at this website which Clifton provided. I found, meaning Clifton found, Semitic genetics. That was the title to that article with a new technique based on the male or Y chromosome. Biologists have traced 
the diaspora of Jewish populations from the dispersals that began in 586 BC to the modern communities of Europe and the Middle East. Now, Clifton noted in a parenthetical remark here that Semitic genetics is an abuse of the term Semitic. He continues citing the article. The analysis provides genetic witness that these communities have, to a remarkable extent, retained their biological identity separate from their host populations. Evidence of relatively little intermarriage or conversion into Judaism over the centuries. Jews, Palestinians, and Syrians share a genetic link. And here I must interject and assert that nobody has any certain sample of DNA of the people of Judah from 586 BC or even from the time of Christ. What is valid in the article, however, is the evidence of the genetic links between modern Jews and Arabs, which is what Clifton is seeking to demonstrate and which the article corroborates. But that does not prove that today's Jews and Arabs are the same as the ancient people of Judah. Clifton's citation continues. Another finding, paradoxical but unsurprising, is that by the yardstick of the Y chromosome, the world's Jewish communities closely resemble not only each other, but also Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese suggesting that all are descended from a common ancestral population that inhabited the Middle East some 4,000 years ago. And again, the article cannot correctly assume that the common ancestral population was of Judah, or even Israelite or Hebrew, or even the preponderant population of the Middle East. We would assert that the common ancestral population was Canaanite, which would include Edomites and Ishmaelites and all others who later mixed with the Canaanites. Again, continuing with Clifton's citation, Dr. Lawrence H. Schiffman chairman of the Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at New York University, said the study fit with historical evidence that Jews originated in the Near East, and with biblical evidence suggesting that there were a variety of families and types in the original population. He said the finding would cause a lot of discussion and of the relationship of scientific evidence to the manner in which we evaluate long-held academic and personal religious positions, like the question of who is a Jew. Evidently, he would include all of the, he would have to include all of these Palestinians, Syrians, and other people of shithole nations, Lebanese. And of course, Schiffman, being a Jew himself, has the same biases and false assumptions that claim that the modern Jews are ancient Israelites, when in fact they were originally Edomites who had intermingled with some Judahites through a historical process which was described by Flavius Josephus and 
which Paul of Tarsus had also mentioned. For example, in Romans chapter 9. Continuing again, the study reported in today's Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences was conducted by Dr. Michael F. Hammer of the University of Arizona with colleagues in the United States, Italy, Israel, England, and South Africa. The results accord with Jewish history and tradition at least how the Jews claim it to be, and refute theories like those holding that Jewish communities consist mostly of converts from other faiths, or that they are descended from the Khazars, a medieval Turkish tribe that adopted Judaism. The Khazar hypothesis was popularized in modern times by the Jew Arthur Kostler, but was found much earlier and described in detail as history in the history of the Jews by a, a quite voluminous history of the Jews by 19th century Jewish historian Heinrich Gretz. We may reject the hypothesis on its surface that non-Jews converted en masse to become the modern so-called Ashkenazi Jews. However, there certainly does appear to be sound historical evidence supporting the proposition that in the Byzantine period Edomite Jewish populations in and around the Caucasus Mountains had mixed with both Aryan and Turkic peoples, all three populations contributing to the formation of the Khazar Empire, which thrived in the region of the Black and Caspian Seas from the 7th through the 10th centuries. So many Ashkenazi Jews have Aryan and Turkic appearances because they are an amalgamation of those races, while many Sephardic Jews are more Arab or even Negro in appearance because they mixed at a greater frequency with those races. To clarify another false assumption, the Ashkenazi Jews do not call themselves by that name because they think they came from Ashkenaz who was a son of the biblical Gomer, who was in turn a son of Japheth. Rather, Ashkenazi Jews call themselves that because in the medieval period they began writing in Germany, and the Jews of Europe had claimed that the Germans were of Ashkenaz. This is very clear in the writing of medieval European rabbis. So for a Jew to use the label Ashkenazi Jew is the same as a non-Jew referring to a so-called German Jew. It's their Jewish word for German is Ashkenaz. But of course it is not at all true that the Germans are of Ashkenaz.
Actually, the Germans are the lost sheep of the House of Israel. The Germans and other related people, such as the Celtic people, the Scandinavians, and some of the original white tribes of southern Europe. Again, Clifton continues his citation. The analysis by Dr. Hammer and colleagues is based on the Y chromosome, which is passed unchanged from father to son. Early in human evolution, all but one of the Y chromosomes were lost as their owners had no children or only daughters. So that all white, uh, I'm sorry, so that all Y chromosomes today are descended from that of a single genetic atom who is estimated to have lived about 140,000 years ago. Now, of course, all of this is pure conjecture. And Clifton illustrated his own doubt with a comment consisting only of a single question mark. So for now, continuing, in principle, all men should therefore carry the identical sequence of DNA letters on their Y chromosomes. But in fact, occasional misspellings have occurred, and because each misspelling is then repeated in subsequent generations, the branching lineages of errors form a family tree rooted in the original Adam. And I would say that if misspellings occurred, it was really because people with Y chromosomes that read, for example, ADAM, mingled with bastards, and now they're spelled D-A-M-N. They're damned. This is once again conjecture, mixing false presumptions from evolutionary biology with an insistence on a monogenesis or a single origin for all anthropoids. Anthropoids meaning two-legged creatures that are supposedly human. The article continues. These variant spellings are in DNA that is not involved in the genes and therefore has no effect on the body. So right there they're actually contradicting themselves. But the type and abundance of the lineages in each population serve as genetic signature by which to compare different populations. Here the paper denies its own conclusions, as there certainly are marked differences in the physical anatomy of the various races of so-called man. The citation continues. Geneticists are full of double talk and, and obvious contradictions. Based on these variations, Dr. Hammer identified 19 variations in the Y chromosome family tree. The ancestral Middle East population, from which both Arabs and Jews are descended, was a mixture of men from eight of these lineages. Among major contributors to the ancestral Arab-Jewish population were men who carried what Dr. Hammer calls the Med lineage. This Y chromosome is found, is found all around the Mediterranean and in Europe and may have been spread by the Neolithic inventors of agriculture or perhaps by the voyages of seagoing people like the Phoenicians. Here Clifton makes an appropriate note in reference to this article's conclusion which says, rather, 
by Arabs and slaves brought into Europe. We must agree. Arab and Jewish genes were spread around the Mediterranean basin, first by Canaanite and Edomite merchants, mostly in the Roman period, and later in the many Arab incursions into Christian Europe. The historical Phoenicians were fair and blonde, something which is attested to in many examples of classical Greek literature. Again, Clifton continues his citation. Another lineage common in the ancestral Arab-Jewish gene pool is found among today's Ethiopians and may have reached the Middle East by men who traveled down the Nile. But present-day Ethiopian Jews lack some of the other lineages found in Jewish communities and overall are more like non-Jewish Ethiopians than other Jewish populations at least in terms of their Y-chromosome lineage pattern. Here Clifton has a note which says, as a question, Elephantine bad fig Jews spread into Ethiopia? There was once a colony of Judean mercenaries at Elephantine which is an island in the Nile River and served as the ancient border between Egypt and Ethiopia. The mercenaries were actually to guard that border. They were planted there by the Persians. In the 5th century BC, a model of the temple in Jerusalem was built there, and documents have been discovered that shed light on this history, which are known as the Elephantine Papyri. But it is also likely that a later influx of Jews came into Ethiopia in significant numbers during the years leading up to the Islamic conquests, as there were many Jews in Arabia, Egypt, Ethiopia, Algeria, and also Khazaria, who had been driven from various parts of the Byzantine Roman Empire after the acceptance and... I'm sorry, and implementation of Christianity by the Greeks and Romans. Continuing the citation, the ancestral pattern of lineages is recognizable in today's Arab and Jewish populations, but it is distinct from that of European populations, and both groups differ widely from sub-Saharan Africans. Each Arab and Jewish community has its own flavor of the ancestral pattern, reflecting their genetic, different genetic histories. Roman Jews, whatever they mean by that, and Clifton calls that into question a little later on, Roman Jews have a pattern quite similar to that of Ashkenazis, the Jewish community of Eastern Europe. Dr. Hammer said the finding accorded with the hypothesis that Roman Jews were the ancestors of the Ashkenazis. Despite the Ashkenazi Jews' long residence in Europe, their Y signature has remained distinct from that of non-Jewish Europeans. Now, we would agree that many Jews left Byzantium after the acceptance of Christianity and fled to Gazaria where they also intermarried with the local Aryans and Turks, bringing many shiksas into their mikvahs, as they did later in Brazil. 
Continuing this citation, on the assumption that there had been 80 generations since the founding of the Ashkenazi population, Dr. Hammer and colleagues calculate that the rate of genetic admixture with Europeans has been less than half a percent per generation. Jewish law, tracing back almost 2,000 years, states that Jewish affiliation is determined by maternal ancestry, so the Y chromosome study addresses the question of how much non-Jewish men may have contributed to Jewish genetic diversity. Dr. Hammer was surprised to find out how little that contribution was. It could be that wherever Jews were, they were very much isolated, he said. The close genetic affinity between Jews and Arabs, at least by the Y chromosome yardstick, is reflected in the Genesis account of how Abraham fathered Ishmael by his wife's maid Hagar, and when Sarah was then able to conceive Isaac. Although Muslims have a different version of the story, they regard Abraham and Ishmael as patriarchs, just as Jews do Abraham and Isaac. And that's actually written by a reporter for the New York Times. Or quoted by a reporter from the New York Times. Of course, the Koran was written by Jews, and the biblical history was absconded by Jews to suit their own political purposes back in the first century AD, and they have used it as a weapon against Christendom ever since. As we have said, it is Canaan and Esau, and not Abraham, who are the true patriarchs of both Jews and Arabs, although to a lesser degree they can claim partial descent from Israel or Ishmael. Now Clifton responds, Nicholas Wade said, This Y chromosome is found all around the Mediterranean and in Europe and may have been spread by the Neolithic inventors of agriculture or perhaps by the voyages of seagoing people like the Phoenicians. So Clifton says, This is pure speculation on Wade's part as neither the Jew nor the Arab were agriculturists, agriculturalists nor seagoing. And that's absolutely true. Wade further stated, Roman Jews have a pattern quite similar to that of Ashkenazis, the Jewish community of Eastern Europe. Dr. Hammer said the finding accorded with the hypothesis that Roman Jews were ancestors of the Ashkenazis. Despite the Ashkenazis' long residence in Europe, their Y signature has remained distinct from that of non-Jewish Europeans. So Clifton responds, it depends here just what Dr. Hammer considers Roman Jews. Surely he is not referring to the Jews of the earlier Roman Empire of the West. If he is referring to the Eastern Roman Empire, yes, that could be linked to the decline of Rome up until the fall of Constantinople in 1453, when it fell to the Turks and Arabs, at which time the Jews followed behind them into the city, actually, there is solid evidence that Jews in the city had opened the gates. So, it's a little more treacherous than that. Dr. Hammer also observes, 
Jewish law, tracing back almost 2,000 years, states that Jewish affiliation is determined by maternal ancestry. So the Y chromosome study addresses the question of how much non-Jewish men may have contributed to Jewish genetic diversity. And Clifton says that this statement by Dr. Hammer is right on target. All Jews trace their lineage through their mother's side back throughout infinite generations. All Israelites trace their lineage back through the father's side through infinite generations. Actually, strict adherence to the concept of matrilineal descent, although it is considered orthodox among Jews, has always varied in history, and in reality, it is only propaganda. All Jewish sects have allowed conversion, and the children from a converted mother were always admitted as Jews. So when children were born to the shiksa in the mikvah, they were always accepted as Jews and commonly intermarried with presumably real Jews. Even a Wikipedia article on the subject, Genetic Studies on Jews, and especially the debates and the spin over the mitochondrial DNA evidence proves that Jews never truly practiced the concept of matrilineal descent, although their own orthodoxy claims it as a practice. Nevertheless, Clifton continues and responds by agreeing on this issue and saying that this should wave a red flag to all who proclaim the false concept that the Jews are Israelites. And this is correct. The twelve the patriarchs of the twelve tribes of Israel, all having had wives of other Adamic tribes, who knows what the mitochondrial DNA of each may have looked like. But the authors of our scriptures reckon tribal affiliations through the father, and this is the important part, so long as the mother was of an acceptable nation, and then the children were also acceptable. Today's genetic scientists only assume that they know how, when, and the why variations in mitochondrial DNA occur, and they pretend to be able to extrapolate mutations back in time to claim genetic connections between people with obvious differences in mitochondrial DNA. So no mitochondrial DNA study can truly be trusted as long as these false presumptions are upheld by the authors. Clifton continues, then Dr. Hammer makes this comment postulation. I think that's redundant. The close genetic affinity between Jews and Arabs, at least by the Y-chromosome yardstick, the, the part that comes from the father, 
is reflected in the Genesis account of how Abraham fathered Ishmael by his wife's maid Hagar, and when Sarah was then able to conceive, Isaac. Now Clifton responds, It would be more surprising if the Jews and Arabs didn't have some genetic characteristics of Abraham. But that doesn't account for their close genetic affinity with Syrians, Palestinians, Lebanese, Khazars, Ethiopians, and Turks. Further, it wouldn't account for why the Jews and Arabs have no genetic chromosomes of the white European people, who are true Israelites and legitimate full-blooded descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, actually, Clifton jumped to a conclusion here. And there certainly are genes in common with whites, and at least many Jews and Arabs. But that is because both Jews and Arabs are mixed from whites with other races. However, the point which Clifton is trying to make is that whites are indeed genetically distinct from Jews and Arabs, and that the true Israelites and Hebrews were indeed white. He continues now by citing another article which substantiates the genetic connections between Jews and Arabs from the website FamilyTreeDNA.com. This is on January 1st, I'm sorry, January 23rd, 2006, which is months before this was ever published. We read the following. Clifton even has the time he accessed it, 10.04 a.m., and Clifton was a pretty late sleeper, by the way. Actually, he stayed up until all hours of the night reading. Actually, the page which Clifton cites here from FamilyTreeDNA.com is no longer even available. I had to include it in the essay and the broken link. However, that page was citing an academic study. And I have found another posting of the study and now have a copy which I can make available in PDF format with this publication of, of this podcast. The original paper was an academic study published in the year 2000, of which the title is High Resolution Y Chromosome Haplotypes of Israeli and Palestinian Arabs reveal geographic substructure and substantial overlap with haplotypes of Jews. The website seems to have made an error in formatting when it cited the original study, so I modified Clifton's representation of it here. You won't notice that in the podcast. Clifton, following the Family Tree DNA website, cited the, the opening part of the study which states abstract high resolution y chromosome haplotype analysis was performed in 143 paternally unrelated israeli and palestinian muslim arabs hereon called i and p arabs israeli and palestinian arabs by screening for 11 binary polymorphisms and 6 microsatellite loci, particular portions of DNA strands. Two frequent haplotypes were found among the 83 detected, 
the modal haplotype of the Israeli-Palestinian Arabs, approximately 14%, was spread throughout the region, while its one-step microsatellite neighbor, the modal haplotype of the Galilee sample, approximately 8%, was mainly restricted to the north. Geographic substructuring within the Arabs was observed in the highlands of Samaria and Judea. Y-chromosome variation in the Israeli and Palestinian Arabs was compared to that of Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews and to that of North Welsh individuals, a totally, a seemingly totally unrelated group. We would assert that the North Welsh are descended from among the first of the ancient Israelites to settle in Western Europe, who were later called Phoenicians by the Greeks. So it is interesting that they were used in this study as the most likely candidates whose DNA would be thought to be unrelated to either Arabs or Jews. A paragraph further on in the study explains this where it says, the North Welsh, a representative European-Caucasian population, were included in the analysis because they do not have a known history of admixture with Jewish communities. The data obtained from the Welsh therefore allowed us to examine possible gene flow from Europeans to Ashkenazi Jews during the diaspora or diaspora, or diaspora probably is most correct. The group of Welsh analyzed included 94 males unrelated at the paternal grandfather level. The samples were collected from villages around Langefni. I'm probably butchering that. I meant to check it and I forgot. L-L-A-N G-E-F-N-I. Maybe it's like Langefni. I don't know. A town in North Wales. The study was approved by the Hebrew University Committee for Ethics in Research. As if Jews could really have ethics. Now we shall continue with Clifton's citation of the study, where in the version he had used, a subtitle was added. But in the original study, this is really only a continuation of the same paragraph which he cited above. And even before we go there, I'm going to say that evidently they chose North Wales because it had no known history of admixture with Jewish communities. If they chose London, there's been a Jewish unknown Jewish presence in London for 500 years, so they probably thought they might catch some mixture of, of Jew from maybe 100 or 200 years ago with, with, with an Englishman or probably an English shiksa. And the same is true or possibly true in Frankfurt, in Helsinki, in, in any one of a million other regions in Europe. So Wales, I guess they thought was a, was a safe place and they needed the genetic results of such a population in order to govern their comparisons of Palestinian Arabs and Jews. Because if the Welsh are nothing like either group, 
and both of those groups are very similar, then that further corroborates and proves the results of the study. So that's why they did that. And I probably carried on too long about that. <laughs> so now we'll continue with Clifton's citation of the original study. At the haplogroup level, defined by the binary polymorphisms only, the Y-chromosome distribution in Arabs and Jews was similar but not identical. At the haplotype level, determined by both binary and microsatellite markers, a more detailed pattern was observed. Single-step microsatellite networks of Arab and Jewish haplotypes revealed a common pool for a large portion of Y chromosomes, suggesting a relatively recent common ancestry. The two modal haplotypes in the Israeli and Palestinian Arabs were closely related to the most frequent haplotype of Jews, the Cohen modal haplotype. However, the Israeli and Palestinian Arab clade that includes the two Arab modal haplotypes and makes up 32% of Arab chromosomes is found at only very low frequency among Jews, reflecting divergence and or admixture from other populations. And this Cohen modal haplotype is definitely a misnomer because the Jews are not Levites as even the New Testament frequently proves. The abstract of such a study is a summary and conclusion of the data and we've only read basically the abstract. And the actual body of the study which I will provide here with this presentation in a link even more in the actual body of the study, even more conclusive statements are made concerning the DNA evidence which proves the relationship between Arabs and Jews. And that explanation of why the Welsh were included was sort of um, unplanned and a digression, but it's important. And, and in studies such as these, the Welsh would be considered a control group. That's what they call them. The Now Clifton cites his third source corroborating the assertion of the relationship between Arabs and Jews. But that source article is now no longer available in its original location. As of this podcast presentation, a portion of it is preserved at the forum for the website FamilyTreeDNA.com. Another representation of the same is found at the website titled The Hemlock Tea Room. When I created Clifton's website, I located and preserved the entire article, which is found on his website under the title Family Feud by Sarah L. Shazley, who herself is an Arab. Here is Clifton's citation of the now-missing article from the website for the History News Network, which is at the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences at George Washington University. That's where Clifton found the original.
from an article which is no longer available there, as I said. Palestinians, however, differ from Arabs in some ways. As the website for Harper's Magazine reported, one study showed that Jews and Palestinians have common ancestry that is so recent that it is highly, that it is highly likely that at least some of the Palestinian blood actually descends from Jews. Another study by New York University confirmed a remarkable similarity between Jewish and Palestinian genes. According to several other studies, Palestinians and Jews are genetically closer to each other than either is to the Arabs of Arabia or to Europeans. A study of congenital deafness identified in an allele limited to Palestinians and Jews of Ashkenazi origin, those who lived in Europe in recent centuries, suggest a common origin. Furthermore, Y-chromosome polymorphism is very similar among Palestinians and Sephardic Jews, while current studies show a lot of similarities and genetic closeness may be used to confirm claims of both sides to Israel or Palestine. Here either Clifton had omitted a portion of the original article, where the author seems to be in subjective denial of the evidence, hoping that perhaps it will be disproved in the future. Nevertheless, it continues by discussing further proof of the relationship. Several studies have shown that Palestinians have a larger than usual among Arabs European blood. I think the words amount of are probably missing there, so I will put them in brackets. This may be explained by the Crusades and by the establishment of a Crusader kingdom in medieval times. It is highly likely that at least some percentage of the population, Palestinian population mixed with Europeans, either through intermarriage or rape of Arab women by Europeans, as well as European women by Arabs. Additionally, cities with significant Palestinian populations, including Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Jerusalem, are sites of many Christian holy landmarks, which draw a large number of European tourists. This too may have played a role in the disproportionate amount of European genes found among Palestinians. Now, this study has been countered by another study which was recently discussed and shared at Christiania, which showed that, in fact, the commonalities between a lot of people in the Middle East and Europeans is actually very ancient. The commonality, commonalities are actually very ancient. The common genetic base is actually very ancient. Now Clifton is citing yet another study. Although he did not properly explain that in his original essay,
This following citation is from an article available in several places on the internet, including ScienceDaily.com. I will slightly reformat Clifton's reproduction. The title was Jews are the Genetic Brothers of Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese. The source is a study done by the New York University Medical Medical Center and School of Medicine. Its dated publication is May 9th of the year 2000. And the summary states in part, If a common heritage conferred peace, then perhaps the long history of conflict in the Middle East would have been resolved years ago. That history is actually only 70 or so years old at this time. For according to a new scientific study, Jews are the genetic brothers of Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese, and they all share a common genetic lineage that stretches back thousands of years. Here I will insert a paragraph that either Clifton or his original source had omitted. Jews and Arabs are really all the children of Abraham, says Harry Oster, medical doctor, director of the Human Genetics Program at New York University School of Medicine, and author of the new study by an international team of researchers in the United States, Europe, and Israel and all have preserved their Middle Eastern genetic roots over 4,000 years, he says. Of course, we would refute the connection to Abraham, and we have already discussed the true historical connections between Arabs and Jews found in the Canaanites and Edomites. Continuing the citation, the researchers analyzed the Y chromosome which is usually passed unchanged from father to son, of more than 1,000 men worldwide. Throughout human history, alterations have occurred in the sequence of chemical bases that make up the DNA in this so-called male chromosome, leaving variations that can be pinpointed with modern genetic techniques, often with guesses. G related populations carry the same specific variations, in this way, scientists can track descendants of large populations and determine their common ancestors when they guess. Here Clifton made a notation where he asserted that much of this paragraph is conjecture. I would certainly agree that scientists use a claim of DNA quote-unquote alterations only to give false support to their belief in evolutionary biology. We would assert that supposed humans have such differences in their DNA because they really do not all have the same origin and much mixing between supposed people of different origins has occurred over the centuries to further confuse the matter. Of course we would also assert that both Arabs and Jews have been at the vanguard of such race mixing throughout history. Continuing with his citation, specific regions of the Y chromosome were analyzed in 1,371 men from 29 worldwide populations, including Jews and non-Jews from the Middle East, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Europe.
The study, published in the May 9th issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, found that Jewish men shared a common set of genetic signatures with non-Jews from the Middle East, including Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese. And these signatures diverged significantly from non-Jewish men outside of this region. Consequently, Jews and Arabs share a common ancestor and are more closely related to one another than to non-Jews from other areas of the world. I suppose we can call that the Satan signature. <laughs> that would be my label for it. Here I will assert another section of two paragraphs that either Clifton or his original source had, had omitted. The study also revealed that despite the complex history of Jewish migration in the diaspora, the time since 556 BC when Jews migrated out of Palestine, Jewish communities have generally not intermixed with non-Jewish populations. If they had, then Jewish men from different regions of the world would not share the same genetic signatures in their Y chromosome. We have already asserted that this too is conjecture. It is only assumed, even by Jews, that they are truly the Israelites of the Old Testament. And the truth of that assumption is always taken for granted. Upon close examination, it can be readily demonstrated that the historical, biblical, and DNA evidence all coalesce to support and corroborate the Christian identity truth of Bible and history. After the people of Judah were removed, Canaanites were left behind. In the first century, or late second century BC, many, but not all, of these Canaanites were converted, including the Edomites. So the study proves, all these studies prove, that the Christian identity view of the Bible and Middle Eastern history are correct, and the Jewish view is wrong. If we see that the Canaanites left behind in the land, and the Edomites had moved into the land, which is very clear in the intertestamental period and recorded history of that period, then these people of Judah who came back from Babylon to Jerusalem, also race mixed with the Edomites, which is very clear in the history of the intertestamental new per period and the New Testament. And those who did not race mix converted to Christianity, and many of them went to northern Syria or to Europe and points beyond. Then the Jews have the same DNA as the Arabs because they're all Canaanites. And we are proven correct. The historical information, when evaluated properly in concert with the DNA evidence, the actual information from the DNA and not the conjecture, then we are proven correct. 
without a doubt, beyond all doubt. We shall continue with the citation. Because ancient Jewish law states that Jewish religious affiliation is assigned maternally, our study afforded the opportunity to assess the contribution of non-Jewish men to present-day Jewish genetic diversity, says Michael Hammer, Ph.D. from the University of Arizona at Tucson, who is the lead author of the new study. It was surprising to see how significant the Middle Eastern genetic signal was in Jewish men from different communities in the diaspora, he says. And of course, none of this law is found in scripture concerning the maternal assignation of the Jewish religious affiliation. None of it's found in scripture. It is only found in the Talmud, the traditions which Christ himself had disclaimed and which his apostles never maintained. They are not Hebrew law, but rather they are pagan Canaanite customs brought into Judaism by the Edomite and Canaanite converts, those who say they are Judeans but are not, who are of the synagogue of Satan. Now the citation concludes with the credits. The authors of this study are Dr. Oster from New York University School of Medicine, Michael Hammer, who we just mentioned, Alan Red, Elizabeth Wood, M. Roxanne Bonner, a name I can't pronounce, Hamdi Jarjit Azel or something like that, and Tanya Karafet from the University of Arizona. Silvana Santa Clara Benercetti from the University of Pavia in Italy. Ariella Oppenheim from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Mark A. Jobling from the University of Leicester in England, Trevor Jenkins from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, and Batshiva Ban Tamar from Tel Aviv University in Israel. So we see that Jews have a preponderance of the study's authors, or actually Jews, or other aliens. At the end of this short article, Clifton inserted the comment, historical slips not fully addressed, which may be a reference to the few paragraphs he excluded, which are peripheral to the matter at hand, in regard to which Clifton now remarks, saying, one cannot fully comprehend the racial makeup of the Arabs and Jews, unless he understands the history of Egypt from 639 until the time of Napoleon in 1798. The history of Egypt during this period is essentially the history of the entire Middle East. Genghis Khan, in his exploits, left a Mongol genetic flavor to the population wherever he conquered new territory. Egypt, during this period, found herself under various rulerships. In AD 639, the Arabs invaded Egypt and came to power. Next were the Fatimids who were of Arab origin, in AD 909. After this came the Ayyubids, who were of Kurdish origin, in 1174. 
Then in 1517 AD came the Mamelukes, evidently a class of Turkic or Caucasian slave warriors in the Middle East who had seized power, followed by the Ottomans, who were of Turkic origin, when Egypt was governed from Istanbul, once Constantinople and even earlier known as Byzantium. If you don't understand the history of the Middle East during this period, don't pretend you know all about the Arabs and Jews today. In the 1200s, Genghis Khan sold a company of slaves to the Sultan of Egypt made up of Turks and Caucasians. They were people who inhabited the region of the Caucasus, not to be confused with the white Caucasians. Some of them, I must add, appear white, but others appear Arab, which I would expect, as the region was conquered for Allah long ago. Genghis Khan sold these slaves from the Turks and Caucasians to become the Sultan's bodyguards and they were also trained as soldiers. They were called Mamelukes. Soon the Mamelukes overthrew the Egyptian Sultan and put their own Sultan in power. The Mameluke Sultans then overran Asia Minor, Syria, and the island of Cyprus. In the wake of all these Arab and Turk exploits, the population was left with a multiracial flavor. A commentator added this to the DNA evidence. From 1301 on, the discriminatory laws increased, the communities dwindled, and at the end of the 15th century, less than 500 Jews remained in Egypt. The Jews who were expelled from Spain began to arrive in 1492 and organized themselves in a separate communities from the Must Arabs, the local Jews. In the course of time, the two communities merged together. This last citation was actually from an article titled The Jewish Community of Cairo. But the point I think Clifton tries to make in his survey of Arab history since the Islamic conquests is that perhaps if all of these other groups were not introduced into the gene pool, the Arab and Jewish DNA would be even closer than it is today. But even with that, we see that there are definite relationships between the Jews and the Arabs. That Jews and Arabs essentially have the very same origin and the DNA demonstrates that. We shall continue this series in the near future. Until we do, the only valid conclusion is this. Jews and Arabs, and as we shall see, most so-called Latinos, are all related and must all therefore be seen as Jews by identity Christians regardless of the nationality or religion which they claim. Before we continue this series, hopefully we shall be able to return to our commentary 
on the Gospel of John, which I had hoped to get to this week and pray I can continue next week. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of any Jew or Arab. And good night.